Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemise Abdelalti from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Vicki Squire about her book, Europe's Migration Crisis, Border Deaths and Human Dignity. This book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. The book examines European practices of governing migration side by side with activist interventions that seek to disrupt them. It is a critical look at solidarity that nonetheless leaves room for optimism and hope. Vicky, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure, yeah, I'm a professor of international politics at the University of Warwick um, in the Department of Politics and International Studies um, in the UK. Um, I've been in Warwick uh, for about 10 years now. So my training has um, also been in the UK. So I I studied um, at the University of Essex, Birmingham University. I've had temporary positions in Australia, Italy, Japan. Um, So I'm an interdisciplinary scholar of migration, displacement and sanctuary. Um, Interdisciplinary, my training is in politics, sociology, critical and continental theory. Um, I came to academia a bit later than many of my colleagues. I came as a mature student, um, following time spent as a young mum and also working in the third sector. Um, And the latter work really led me to focus on issues surrounding asylum and migration. So my my PhD was looking at asylum policy and practice in the UK and and Europe. I've also done research um, in various contexts around migration and displacement across the world. And you have a very uh, rich research agenda, um, but let's talk about this specific book. Um, how did you come to write this book, Europe's Migration Crisis? Yeah, so good question. I mean, as I said, I've obviously been working in, in this area um, through my career. Um, but what initially prompted this specific book um, was a shipwreck that happened. It was about a mile off the coast of a small island, the small island Lampedusa on 3rd of October 2013. Uh, This led to the deaths of many people migrating. Um, It's a a kind of very famous case, one that led to a a lot of kind of response across Europe. Um, And the work, in this case, it really resonated with work that I'd been doing on the Mexico-US border in that region, uh, where I'd um, been doing field work and I'd seen a lot of migrant deaths, but happening largely, um, you know, in the desert rather than at sea. Um, so, um, you know, when, with this case in 2013, I was very, um, you know, struck by the importance of doing more research in this region and on this area. I applied for a Leverhulme Trust Fellowship um, and I was awarded funds in 2015 which meant that I was able to be on the ground just as the so-called European migration crisis was unfolding. Um, and it was actually my first time to do research in the Mediterranean. So, so I had done work in the Balkans for, for a short period during my PhD, as well as, I said, as I said, uh, Mexico-US border region as a postdoc. 2015 was my first time in the Mediterranean. And, and while the Leverhulme Fellowship focused primarily on Italy, 
Um, I also received funding for a larger collaborative project. Um, at the same time, it was a, a kind of urgent response to the migration crisis, a project that took me to Malta, to Greece, to Turkey, and, and the wider team was also in Germany. Um, so it meant I had a real deep immersion in various sites where people were arriving or migrating through during 2015 and 2016. Uh, actually, I had time off as well for my third child in 2017. So I continued the work um, as late as 2018. So the book, Europe's Migration, uh, Migrant Crisis has come out of all this work. Um, and I always think about it, it sits very much alongside uh, another book that I co-wrote called Reclaiming Migration, which is focused more on, on kind of migrant voices and testimonies. How uh, remarkable that you were on the ground, you know, as this quote unquote uh, crisis was unfolding. Um, you started to talk a little bit about this, um, but I wanted to ask you to speak about your methods in maybe a little bit more detail. So what sort of research did you do for this book? Yeah, so I was using a range of methods. I think the book's quite trying to do quite a lot of things in, in all honesty. Um, so the first part is based on analysis of the European policy framework, the governing practices, the discursive articulation of, of, of the, the response over time from 2015 onwards. Um, and I marry that with a kind of conceptual work as well. So I explore the concept of dignity um, as this has emerged in the European context in relation to humanism and humanitarianism. Um, but core to the book are a series of in-depth qualitative interviews. Um, these were wide ranging. There were many more than actually make it into this book um, directly. Um, it included interviews with policymakers, politicians, with practitioners, with migrants, and, and, and primarily focusing as uh, on interviews with activist groups. So that's really the primary material that makes up um, particularly the second part of the book. And I guess, you know, I always really want to thank the research participants of the project when I talk about this work, because, you know, it's, it is really deeply embedded in, in those um, engagements over time. Interviews, but, you know, I also spent time um, with different activist groups during, during my field work, which, which was really enriching. So it's a collaborative book, if you like. You know, it's very much written with others um, throughout. And it really comes across, I think, in the richness of the detail that we see, um, especially, as you said, in the, in the second half of the book, which we'll get to, I hope, in a little bit. Um, now, one of the first things you do in the book is look critically at the framing of crisis. Um, you know, as, as you know, this uh, sort of talk of a crisis is tied to um, several shipwrecks uh, that happen in 2015 and an increase in the numbers of people arriving in Europe. Um, but you argue that there were actually multiple narratives, dueling crises almost. Can, can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, yeah, so a really important aspect of this book is uh, I try to diagnose the distinct politics of crisis, the forms of power and violence implicated in practices of governing migration to Europe. And as you said, trace different uh, narratives of crisis um, as a means to sort of situate and embed that, that analysis. 
So there's been lots of work over recent years that advances uh, kind of critique of, of Europe's framing of migration as a crisis. Lots of excellent scholarship here. Um, some have emphasised that the situations should be understood as a kind of humanitarian crisis for refugees rather than a security crisis for Europe, while others, um, they more fundamentally challenge the, the exceptionalism of crisis politics and its diversion of attention from political struggles over migration. Um, and my work um, definitely fits much more in that latter body of work. But as you say, in, in, in the first part of the book, I, I try to do something a bit different. Firstly, in terms of tracing these different strands um, of, of crisis. And there's various different ways in which uh, this crisis is articulated. I'll go into the details in the book. Um, but, you know, 2015 and subsequent years, um, the narratives of crisis proliferate, different actors involved in articulating crisis proliferate. Um, and, but what I, what I try to do in the book, in the first part of the book at least, is to sort of show how these legitimise the rolling out of control more extensively, you know, be, beyond the EU, at sea and at key entry points. Um, so I really draw on critical works here that challenge a way in which crisis politics um, generates a kind of compulsion for action. You know, crisis means we have to take action, but at the same time, it takes it out of the domain of, of what securitization theorists call um, normal politics. So, you know, there's a big strand of work in the field that critiques the way in which migration is articulated um, as a security concern and the lack of debate that that facilitates. Yeah, so the book sort of uh, really tries to challenge the dominant narratives of crisis that present deaths at sea as unpredictable and irresolvable, um, and it emphasises crisis politics um, as presenting kind of as new issues that Europe's actually been grappling with for a very, very long time, right? Um, I mean, I think there's something in the book that I try to do a bit differently, though, um, around crisis politics um, from, from uh, you know, much of the critical work here. And that's where I point to crisis also um, as an opportunity. So um, an opportunity in the sense it's a moment of, of opening or it's a kind of critical turning point, a moment when change can take place. Um, and what I try to do is re-engage um, crisis politics in, in these terms to suggest 2015 was a moment that created new alter, sort of created new openings for alternative horizons, alternative horizons of solidarity and hope. Um, but I also try to do something else, um, which is show how 2015 can be understood as, as a, a crisis in more more deep-rooted sense. Um, and I, I kind of argue that um, the, that Europe's so-called migrant crisis can be understood as a critical moment for Europe's longest-standing tradition of humanism and a racialized concept of the human within which this is embedded. So I'm, I'm hoping to get into some of those details. Um, but one of the things that the book really does a 
great job uh, at is documenting um, the ways in which death and vulnerability at Europe's borders have become normalized. Can you describe some of the policy mechanisms and the power dynamics that are implicated in this process? Mm. Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, what I, what, what I talk about when I refer to um, death and vulnerability being normalized, what I refer to here is the way that this has become, these deaths have been very accepted. Um, they've just become regular, um, sort of anticipated aspects of, um, life at the shores of Europe, if you like, um, and um, the, the kind of political will to address this in that sense, we could say, you know, is, is reduced. Um, and in the book, yeah, in, I, I talk a lot about the uh, ways in which policy initiatives have been developed in these terms. So there's various ways we can view this um, in terms of the ways in which um, controls are, are, are pushed further out, away from Europe, deaths then uh, and vulnerabilities become normalised away from Europe's shores. So Libya will be, you know, key example here. You know, the the now very well documented abuse, torture, um, you know, and exploitation that migrants experience um, in Libya, but, you know, not simply at the hands of Libyan authorities or, um, you know, people in Libya, but also um, supported by the, by the European Union funds um, to support, for example, the Coast Guard, um, uh, the Libyan Coast Guard holding people back. But also, of course, you know, at sea, we see deaths at sea. This is this is a regular. This is not always accepted, but a, a kind of accepted in the sense that it's anticipated. Um, it's expected that there will be deaths at sea year in year out. Um, 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 European uh, states and the EU have over the years. Um, Changed, changed policies around rescue or, and disembarkation. What, we, what we're seeing um, uh, at, at that time was a move uh, away from uh, a, a more generous rescue programme that Italy um, had developed, Mara Nostrum, towards um, a situation where people were much more likely to be abandoned at sea um, and face death. Um, and then again, when we come to Europe's shores, <laughs> um, a, a key aspect of what was happening around the time I was doing this research was the development of what were called hotspot centres for people who were arriving to Europe. These are sort of detention um, centres. They were designed to kind of move people through the system very quickly and ascertain whether they you know, people arriving had a had a right to, to um, seek protection or not, but people actually, you know, became very much stuck in these sort of detention infrastructures with, uh, you know, appalling conditions. So the vulnerabilities there also become very much uh, normalised. Now, this leads you into a, a fascinating and critical discussion of appeals to human dignity. 
Uh, can I ask you to reflect a little bit on, uh, you know, what you call the mobilization of dignity? Yeah, so this was a kind of strand of interest that just, you know, struck me. I wrote it into my application for the Leverhulme Trust. So then I had to, of course, follow it through. Um, um, but it was very much, um, you know, it, it very much struck me that um, appeals to human dignity were coming thick and fast and from all directions. Um, you know, including, um, you know, where you might expect people to be talking about human dignity. So international organisations such as the Red Cross, um, UNHCR, uh, but also places that we might not expect that, such as Frontex, so, you know, the European Coast Guard Border Agency. Um, and then, um, you know, the, these appeals to human dignity were, uh, were kind of evident in the religious sphere. So Pope Francis, uh, you know, um, was, has, has been, continues to be, you know, quite a, a present figure around uh, migration um, in the central Mediterranean, also appealing to human dignity. And, and I was finding elsewhere as well, you know, in, in my other project that many migrants were also appealing to, to dignity. So, yeah, so the appeal to dignity um, kind of struck me as one that needed to get to be looked into. And from there, um, I, I, I started unpacking it historically as a term. Um, you know, it's very central to humanitarian law, 20th century humanitarian law. It's, it's there in the preamble to the Geneva Conventions. But also, you know, as I dug in deeper, um, I found that there's there's a lot um, there's a lot more um, uh, depth and interest to this concept actually. Um, so it's a it's you know we often think of human dignity as a universal you know appeals to kind of universal rights respect for all, um, but that that universalism is notably partial. And you can see that when you trace through the history of the concept, you know, going back to Cicero on the superiority of man to animals, Mirandola on man as made in the image of God, yet having the capacity to generate and so to degenerate into brutish forms of life. Um, so then I was also interested in, you know, the sort of colonial dimensions and perspectives. Uh, Winter talks about man and the subjugation of human others. So the kind of processes of dehumanization that come with a concept that is so hierarchical, um, I found uh, really important uh, to unpack. And Anne Phillips talks about um, this concept. She says, dignity is problematically substantive and hierarchical. So, um, yeah, so for me, you know, the, the, I was very interested between the tensions here, these tensions in the concept of dignity, between this universal kind of egalitarian strand and a more kind of hierarchical inegalitarian one. This is, this is present in the history of um, Catholic thought as well, where dignity is such an important concept. So, you know, so I find that concept very important very interesting that many could relate to it from different sort of political perspectives and positionalities um, it's this open term 
um, that all can relate, you know, that all can appeal to. And yet, on the other hand, it's got these undercurrents um, of what I refer to as a kind of a kind of racialized conceptions of dignity in the book that dehumanize. And, and you can see that at play, I think, in those the policies that, um, that I look at. I have to say, I really appreciated your discussion um, there. And, you know, even as a scholar of, refu of you know, uh, refugee movements, I had not quite uh, thought about dignity in those terms. So it was very, mm -hmm. um, it was really quite interesting to read through. Now, one of uh, the central arguments in the book is that the quote unquote Mediterranean migration crisis can be understood as a breakdown of modern European humanism. Can you walk us through this argument? Well, I can try. This is a complex argument for me also in, in this book. And I think there's lots to unpack here. And, you know, this book scratches the surface. Um, but what I try to do then um, is highlight how the, a kind of modern European and I would say a colonial tradition of humanism is grounded in an appeal to mastery. Um, mastery, like as in the sense of um, uh, humanity's mastery over nature, is one version of this. And the mastery of some humans over others is another. So when I refer to um, what I refer to in the book is a crisis of humanism, okay, so that 2015, we can understand this as a moment where we see the kind of breakdown of this tradition of humanism. Um, and I, I guess, you know, particularly when we think about boat migration from the global south, we could see this as kind of triggering deep-rooted racialized anxieties about a loss of control. Uh, I draw, draw inspiration here from scholars of, um, of climate change refugees who also refer to this idea of racial invasion and the dissolution of white supremacy, pointing to the ways that this kind of, these fears around racial invasion and the dissolution of white supremacy are particularly intense when we're dealing both with issues around climate, the environment, and people moving across borders. So I find that really fascinating um, and um, very, um, yeah, very important for the work that I was doing. Um, and what I, and maybe I could just read a quote actually, because I think um, uh, Goldberg. Um, has this quote that I think characterises some of these anxieties really nicely. Um, so David Goldberg, he says, as the racial of nature, the sea's other side, its underside, represents all the built-up fears about those racially characterised from the not here, monsters from elsewhere, shadows from places unknown and threatening in their unknowability. I think he quite, you know, um, articulates that in a, in a way that I, I couldn't quite manage. But what I point to in the book is the way in which migrant deaths at sea represent a double failure of mastery on the part of Europe. So failure to control 
what I call unruly migration, that migration that is unwanted but occurs anyway, but also a failure to fully master the sea and the lethality of the sea. So on the one hand, and scholars have you know, pointed to this, and myself included, that on the one hand, the sea can be seen as instrumentalised for the purposes of migration control, right? It's what Roxanne Lynn Doty talks about as a moral alibi for states. She talks about the desert. It's a moral alibi. The desert is killing migrants. It's not the state. We can't blame the state. It's just unfortunate that people are dying in the desert. Um, she, of course, says, no, there's a lot of policies put in place by the state that condition those deaths. So we can see on the one hand, the sea instrumentalised in this way. But, but on the other hand, I think what we also see are these deep rooted fears surrounding the radical independence of nature and of subjugated subjects. And these fears are kind of I suggest a haunting European humanism. It's a moment where it, you know, those fears are kind of become overwhelming and, and, and there's a kind of opportunity there to see how that sort of breakdown of that order. So it's in those terms, that I guess, yeah, that I suggest so-called European migration crisis represents a more far-reaching crisis of humanism. Um, I think it's, you know, it's it's just uh, work that I, I think is really important to explore further. And as I said, it, I feel it's just the beginning in this book. But it's really, I think, a very sophisticated and very compelling um, examination that you have in this book. Um, and I think listeners really need to read through it to fully grasp uh, really the, the details mm. of that argument there. So I want to move to the second half of the book. And the second half of the book shifts from thinking about EU politics and uh, EU migration governance to thinking about pro-migrant activist interventions. Now, one of the interventions you look at is the Humanitarian Corridors Program. Can you tell us uh, what your analysis uh, there reveals? Yeah. So, um, yeah, maybe just an introduction to the Humanitarian Corridors, which is um, an initiative um, that was uh, developed in Italy by um, several religious organisations. Um, it is basically, um, you know, in a simple sense, it's a humanitarian corridor, it's a safe route out of situations of um, vulnerability for um, those who need protection. Now, um, this is a very well-developed um, and um, carefully researched um, intervention on the part of um, of the groups involved. Uh, and what they actually did was they looked into Schengen visa regulations. So the, the visa regulations specific to kind of European free movement space. Um, and they found um, an article in there related to visas with, with, with a limited territorial validity. And what this means is that um, individual uh, member states can um, provide a humanitarian visa for people who are overseas to come to their state, their state specifically, um, on the grounds of there being a national interest or there being international obligations to do so. 
Um, and what the uh, organisations did was they took this legislation um, to um, Italian uh, government and developed um, a memorandum of understanding in 2015 for there to be 1,000 of these visas provided um, to people who were located in Lebanon or to Morocco. And from that 2015 memorandum of understanding, further memorandums were developed, um, including from e for, for people to come to Italy from Ethiopia and for and within other countries in the EU. So quite a lot of work was also done to share this with other similar organisations across uh, the European Union to develop similar programmes there. Um, so it's a kind of private sponsorship um, based um, and fundraising based mechanism of enabling people to travel rather than to make those dangerous journeys by boat. Um, um, yeah, so in the book, I talk about the ways in which um, in which this is developed. Um, I talk about the ways in which this enables a, a kind of alternative to the dangers that people face migrating um, uh, by sea, by boat, um, that, that enables travel with dignity. People are arriving, you know, by aeroplane. They uh, have a welcome party. Um, I think there's even red carpets in some cases, you know, the, the symbolism, but also the material difference that it makes to the people arriving um, is obviously really important. Um, so, yeah, so I look into the ways um, this programme's been developed, uh, what the way in which it involves a kind of deepening of understandings of protection and vulnerability in the sense that to qualify to come via that route people simply need to be in a refugee camp. This, this is different to uh, you know, vulnerabilities where it's often women and children, people with disability, there's additional vulnerability criteria. Here, um, it's about, um, you know, anyone could actually qualify, but it's about finding um, people who are going to benefit the most from coming specifically to Italy. What I do in the chapter is point to some of the different politics at play here. Um, you know, so this is more than one organisation. There are different um, there are different uh, groups involved, and there's also different politics involved. Uh, and uh, some are more challenging of the dominant European response to migration than others. I try to untangle that and what, I, what I'm always trying to do in these empirical chapters is to look at the, the alternative horizons of hope and solidarity that these interventions open up, pay attention to their, their, their sort of deep potential as well as some of the challenges that arise for them. So um, another uh, activist intervention that you look at is the Sea Watch Initiative. Um, can you describe this initiative for us and tell us about some of your findings there? Yes, thanks. So Sea Watch um, is a, a sea rescue um, operation. It's a volunteer association. It was developed. It's set up um, in Germany, um, uh, and it set out really 
uh, as they describe it, the activists describe it as more like a sort of swimming telephone box. <laughs> so, you know, the idea was for observation of what was happening in the Mediterranean at sea for publics, initially in Germany, but, you know, across Europe, to actually, to actually be more aware of what was happening. So, as I said to you at the beginning, you know, in October 2013, this Lampedusa shipwreck case was, it was a very visible moment. And European publics found out about it. Similarly, in April 2015, shipwrecks where there were many hundreds who died, which prompted the so-called European migration crisis and, and European policymakers' responses. This again was very visible, but I guess the point is it, it's often not visible. It's normalised. Uh, and so, the, yeah, the aim was to, to observe what was happening and report that back. But what happened for those involved in Sea-Watch was they soon realised that actually they needed to rescue people because people weren't being rescued. Um, and so, you know, they're out there with their boats um, as, pe as they come across people in distress, they will uh, bring them onto their ship. They subsequently got larger boats over time because of the need for the rescue that they were providing. Um, and yes, in this chapter, again, I'm paying attention to, you know, what's, what's the kind of political intervention here and what's its power? So certainly the observation aspects I highlight are really, really important. Um, I talk about the politics of witness that Sea-Watch uh, is involved in. So documenting pushbacks and uh, what we now call pullbacks from Libya as people have found it harder to, to get away from Libyan shores over time. Um, so that politics is really important to see watch. Um, I also um, point to the ways in which um, some participants in Sea Watch see the solidarities they're forging very much in terms of a kind of seafarers tradition um, understood as kind of this sort of humanity, this humanity towards any person at sea who might be in distress. It's a very human to human connection. Um, but I also show how, you know, many involved in Sea-Watch, uh, some point to this solidarity is in, inherent to the tradition and others suggest actually that that tradition isn't present and that precisely that's evident when it comes to migrants. So um, I, do, I unpack the um, mobilisation and also point to sort of deep-rooted uh, criminalisation of activists working in this area, um, which uh, has been developing over time. That this, you know, this sort of intervention is challenging of states, um, and increasingly those activists involved are facing charges of supporting irregular migration and involvement in smuggling um, as, a, as a response to that. And some of these dynamics are obviously still ongoing. Um, but uh, another activist intervention that you look at is grave dressing. Um, can you talk a little about cemetery activism and why it's so powerful? Mm. 
Yeah, so I look at grave dressing in Lampedusa. And Lampedusa, as I said, this is a very small island, uh, very far south. It's, you know, it's, it's an Italian island, but very far south and has seen over the years many arrivals. And so it's a, a really small community and people there have been living with uh, the deaths of people migrating for many years. It's, it's very present and visible. In fact, you know, I, I think it's really one activist um, in particular who um, really started this work on, on finding the names of people who had died um, in response to her seeing unnamed graves in the uh, Lampedusa Cemetery. And this is taken off since, you know, it's not one activist, many different activists are involved in this process. Um, you know, the work involved in doing that, in naming the dead, is actually really significant because for many years that, that wasn't happening. Again, it's a similar, you know, on the US-Mexican border, of course, you know, to, to actually document the, the names of those who have have died takes a lot of commitment and, and work. So there's there's um, that important aspect of it and a sense that you know naming and understanding the lives of those who have passed away is, a, is an act of respect in itself, is an act of, of, dig, of dignifying. Um, certainly again there are uh, different ways in which this occurs. Um, you know, some, some approaches to grave dressing are much more, uh, I would say, in line with a, a politics of pity, kind of a, a humanitarian approach that is being criticised in academic literatures, in which I also, you know, criticize, develop a critique of in this book. Um, so, yeah, this, this kind of pity, this compassion that, doesn't really challenge those unequal relations, those hierarchical relations within which dehumanisation is embedded. Um, so I point to also the ways in which there's tensions in grave dressing practices. Some are more orientated towards solidarity, others towards pity, but that there's uh, a sort of deep-rooted responsibility for the disappeared and response to family members on the part of these very committed activists who are involved in uh, grave dressing and who have to face family members often coming to the island and trying to seek loved ones who have who have disappeared um, and to support them in their in the process of of, of kind of documenting trying to find. Uh, loved ones work out what's happened to them and that sort of painful process of taking responsibility for those deaths on the part of activists is, is something I try to sort of trace in the chapter. And you do a very powerful job, I think, of, of tracing that. Um, so the book came out in 2020 and a lot has happened, right, since the book has been published. Uh, how do you think the book helps us think about recent events in the region? Yeah, well, you know, sadly, we see a lot of what the book 
uh, talks about in terms of the death and vulnerabilities of people migrating. You know, we see a continuation of that. Um, and uh, I would say um, the situation has uh, become worse over time in terms of the, uh, the brutality of experiences people face. Um, as I've hinted at already, we were looking more at pushbacks from Italy um, and delays in disembarking people, etc. at the time that I was doing field work and now we're facing a situation much more where people aren't getting far from the Libyan coast and experiencing uh, brutality there. So there's a lot still happening um, that's similar. And as you hinted at as well, you know, activists' criminalisation, um, this is happening too. Uh, that has become well established. Uh, we see it um, in the Balkans as well. So I think just a few days ago, there were four activists um, who were arrested um, on the Poland-Belarus border region for giving food to people in the forest. So, you know, we see forests, um, rivers enrolled in these um, uh, violent practices to which I, I point to but also uh, an embedding and a deepening of activist commitment. So, you know, I think, I think what we see is a deepening of both the violence and the solidarity um, and, and a, I guess, a, a, a deepening divide, I think, you know, politically um, in terms of responses to migration. I think also we see people having uh, longer, more difficult journeys than some of the people we saw in 2015 and 2016. And we see people who have become stuck um, without their lives moving forward. Um, so there's a lot distressing um, still in the situation. Um, and I'd like to uh, give a, a, a kind of picture of hope and solidarity, which I think I can confidently in the sense that, you know, those solidarity movements are really incredible um, in their development and their commitment and the ongoing commitment in light of such difficult situations. Um, but I think, you know, process of change is not a fast one in this area. Um, or, a, or an assured one. So it's continuously important work. Um, of course, the one thing that I should mention is Ukraine. Um, Europe has a new migration crisis that doesn't seem to be called a migration crisis, um, as in a lot of people arriving, which previously would be you know, referred to as a crisis, um, currently isn't um, being referred to in those terms. Um, the book highlights the racialized dynamics of dehumanization. And of course, um, it's, it's not probably surprising to many of us working in the field that we see, you know, strong uh, expression of solidarity um, with Ukrainian refugees racialized as white Europeans. Um, and that we've also seen violence targeted towards those who have been fleeing Ukraine who are, are not racialized in such terms. So
So the book is sadly um, only too uh, relevant today, I would say. I would be very happy to advise people not to buy it because it's outdated. But um, yeah, yeah, unfortunately not. Um, but, you know, I, I do really hope that what this book provides is also windows of, of hope and optimism, um, because certainly also having done research with people migrating, you know, the, the solidarity that the expressions of solidarity that are just a few of which are documented in this book really do mean mean a lot and have a life-changing uh, or a life not a life-changing impact because people's situations remain precarious but in human to human terms um, that's really important and, and you know that's what I wanted to do with this book is point to the histories and the presence of hope and solidarity that are still there despite um you know the violence and brutalities that, that we can see on this on the surface and that have deep-rooted effects in people's life thank you for that um you know we we are recording this uh at a point where over four million people have left uh ukraine uh, and as you noted um you know many people have pointed to sort of the very differential responses uh, uh, to Ukrainian refugees compared to other refugee groups. And I think this conversation in this book uh, is, is very timely because it really d directs our attention towards um, how it is that, that other groups are being um, treated uh, by uh, European states and also how it is that activists are responding vis-a-vis -vis these other groups as well. Um, and, you know, as we noted, many, many of the dynamics that you discuss in the book continue to be very relevant today. So, Vicky, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, so just one final question. What are you working on now? Yeah, thanks. So um, I'm, I'm not working in the Mediterranean at the moment. Uh, at the moment, I'm leading a project uh, in South Sudan and Nigeria, looking at... Um, internal displacement. So this is a bit of a change for me. Um, I haven't uh, done work on IDPs, internally displaced persons before, nor in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so that project's uh, really interesting. I'm working with great colleagues, um, both those based in, in um, Nigeria and South Sudan, also working with practitioners from IOM who specialize in data um, because the project is very much focused around the use of uh, data in the provision of assistance um, and questions of um, epistemic and data justice or injustices in that context. So really interesting, um, but certainly um, that my uh, next project, I'm, I'm wanting to come back to the work that I've done here um, uh, and in particular, also in my book on reclaiming migration, looking at migrant testimony, testimonies and claims making that emerge out of these experiences that the, that the book documents. Thank you. Those sound like great projects. Um, Vicky, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. The book is Vicky Squire's Europe, Europe's Migration Crisis, Border Deaths and Human Dignity, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Thank you for listening.